Good morning. It is a delight to have you this morning. We're glad that you're here. We're always thankful for this opportunity. What a privilege it is to be together, to be in the presence of God, and to offer Him our praises and to give Him the glory that He deserves. If you have your Bibles and you're in Genesis chapter 4, by now you know we have uh, gotten ourselves into a study. I say gotten ourselves like you had something to do with it. Uh, <laughs> We've begun a study of a series of questions that are revealed to us in the Bible, and we're trying to answer those, learn from them, and then apply them to ourselves as best we can. And we've reached Genesis chapter 4, where actually there are three questions in this section of Scripture that we will note, except not this morning. This morning we'll note one question. I'm learning. <laughs> one question that God asked Cain. You remember the introduction from last week? Yes? Fantastic. Fantastic. So if you'll use that, and we'll just jump in. God has rejected Cain and his offering, and Cain's reaction to that is recorded for us in this next verse or two, and then God's reaction to Cain's reaction is what brings the question on, and we'll get to that and answer that. Let's begin with Cain's reaction to God's rejection of he and his offering. It's recorded there in verse number five. The Bible says, but unto Cain and to his offering, God had not respect, and Cain was very wroth or angry, and his countenance fell. Cain reacts emotionally to God's rejection of he and his offering, and that emotion can be seen in his anger. In fact, the word actually means to be hot or to be furious. Cain is angry at God for God's rejection of Cain and his offering. The Bible follows that by saying his countenance has fallen. Cain's problem here is the problem that many people have in their relationship with God. It is an improper response to correction. God is correcting Cain, attempting to. He has rejected him and his offering to teach him something. And Cain's response to that is anger. And it seems that that is the response that many people have toward God. The lesson that God would love for us to learn, humanity to learn, is that he requires obedience. We're at the beginning of the Bible. We, we reference this. Genesis 1 and 2 is creation. And Genesis 3 is the first sin committed by humanity. And what we learned in that is that God means what he says and that God will hold us accountable to his word and to keep it. And if we should disobey him, God will come to us as he did with Cain or Adam and Eve and he talked to them, but eventually he did punish them. He doled out punishments for everyone involved, and eventually they were put out of the garden. We are now talking about Cain and the subject of sacrifice and communion with God. And what happens? One person does it by faith and thus appropriately, and God receives and accepts. The other person disobeys. He's of the wicked one. And in his disobedience, God rejects him. We are supposed to learn this from God. We're supposed to learn this in Genesis 3 and chapter 4, but many people have come to the conclusion that God doesn't require obedience anymore. 
Or maybe that he used to require it, but now grace has come and he doesn't require it anymore. These are hardly the only two examples. As we talked about last week, God has given numerous examples, recorded them for us so that we could learn them. We talked about Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus 8 to 10. We talked about Naaman, 2 Kings 5, with his leprosy. We talked about Uzzah. Uzzah didn't get hurt or injured. He died, 2 Samuel 6. Grace does not nullify obedience. There are at least two reasons why that sort of thinking is wrong. Number one, grace doesn't begin in the New Testament. People almost read the Bible as if God was a a mean tyrant all the way through the Old Testament, and then Jesus came and God softened up and got a little nicer and gave us His grace. When God describes Himself in Exodus 34, He describes Himself, among other ways, as good abundant in goodness and truth. The description in Exodus 34, 6, and 7 is about the eternal character and nature of God. In other words, God has always been infinitely good. He's never been anything else. And grace is not or does not begin in the New Testament. Genesis chapter 6 is the first time you will find the word, but the actions have been since the creation. Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 8, the Bible says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace has to be given by God because when we sin, we have no way back to him. And so God will give grace. That's the way it always works. It's not a New Testament concept. Secondly, the grace of God actually teaches us how to obey God. Let me reference it again, and hopefully you'll remember it, and it will just be cemented into your heart and mind. 1 Corinthians 2, 8 to 13 explains that without God's revelation, we cannot know the mind of God. So then how would one learn to obey God? You see, the very grace that God gives provides the instruction for how to obey And so it's not the case that grace does away with obedience. It's how he explains obedience. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse number 11, the apostle Paul says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. The reason we know how to obey is because God graciously revealed his mind to us. The Bible is full of God's demands for obedience in both covenants. Jesus taught it. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name? Did not we cast out demons in your name? Did not we do many wonderful works in your name? And then I will profess to them, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. That word iniquity is the word lawlessness. You refuse to obey me. And that's why you must depart from me. Jesus would ask in Luke 6 and verse 46, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? He said in John 14, If you love me, keep my commandments. James says, Be not hearers only, 
But be ye doers of the word, not deceiving yourselves. Question then, how do I know if I have obeyed God? There are four ways you can know, four things you can do. And by doing these things, you'll know whether or not you've obeyed God. Number one, do what he said. If you do what he said, you've obeyed him. God is going to tell Noah, make an ark. How will Noah know whether or not he obeyed God? Well, we'll see an ark. We don't see an ark. We know you didn't obey. You do what he says. You do it when he said it. If God provides a time frame, then you do it within the time frame. My spirit should not always strive with men. Yet his days will be 120 years. I know how long then when this ark's going to be built. Thirdly, do it why he said it. If God specifies this is why you do it, well, then that's why you do it. You don't make up your own reasons. If God gives a reason for doing it, that's the reason you're doing it. Now, sometimes parents just short-circuit that, and they say, because I said so. <laughs> Good enough. If the reason we're doing it is because you said so, well, then that's the reason we'll do it. And if God specifies, then you do it how he said it. If God says make an ark out of gopher wood, then you make it out of that wood. If God says 300 by 50 by 30, then that's the dimensions and the measurements. If God says put a window and a door, then that's what you do. If God says seal it within and without, then that's what you do. Cain did not obey God, and he was rejected. And we need to ask ourselves, when did it become all right to stop obeying God? When did God stop requiring obedience? And who decided that his commands were optional? The Bible gives many commands. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Question, do children have to obey their parents or not? Because children who disobey and dishonor their parents disobey and dishonor God. And Paul says, for this is right. Well, then to disobey would be wrong. But that's hardly the only one. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Wives, see to it that you reverence your husband. Older women, teach the younger women. Elders, feed the church. Preachers, preach the word. Christians, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. Give diligence to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needed not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Let me ask you this. When did these become options? Who went into a room and decided, well, you don't have to do that one. You don't have to do that one. You don't have to do that one. I mean, after all, we're under grace. Who did that? These and many other things, God has not stopped requiring obedience. God's reaction to Cain's reaction is what happens next. The first thing that's noteworthy is the Bible says the Lord said unto Cain. God's reaction is to come to Cain just like he did Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Cain sinned, and here is God talking to Cain. Why? Because God is a loving father who has a son who has been disobedient. And what does God do? He comes to him. 
There is an entire series that we'll study together, Lord's will, at some point entitled Getting to Know God. But I'm just going to beg you to see in God the goodness that's portrayed in these first two instances of sin. And allow God's actions in these passages to begin to determine and to shape your thoughts about God. If God were this mean villain that so many people tend to think that he is, then he didn't have to revisit Adam and Eve. He could have just killed them. And if God is this mean villain that everyone seems to think, then he didn't have to come talk to Cain. He could have just killed him. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's what it deserves. How many sins? One. One sin is worthy of death, and not just death in the sense of dying physically, but death eternally. One sin is worth that. If God were to enact the exact justice it required, that's what it's worth, but that's not what God does. God comes to Cain. God talks to Cain. In fact, you'll hear God appealing to Cain. Notice verse number six. Here's the question. The Lord said unto Cain, why are you wroth? Why is your countenance fallen? Why are you angry? It is absolutely essential for children to learn the proper response to the proper stimuli. It's what parents try to teach them all the time. Our emotions are developed early in life, and they're trained by parents. What's at stake here is more than just the offering. What's at stake is Cain's spiritual development and ultimate well-being spiritually as it relates to God. And God is trying to help him understand this is the wrong reaction. And so the question, why are you angry? Here's what God knows. I trust you and I know it as well. Anger is not the appropriate response to being corrected after you have done wrong. And yet it's the one that many parents deal with. How many parents have given their children instructions and, oh, the children does it wrong, and then the, the parents punish? You didn't do your homework. You didn't observe your curfew. You didn't do your chores. And now you're being punished. I told you that on the front end. I gave you these instructions. I told you these things, and I shared with you the consequences, and then you didn't do them. And so here I am now. I'm going to take something from you. I'm not letting you go. You're going to be on punishment. What happens? The child is angry at the parent. Well, that's not the right response. And so what do good parents do? They find themselves sitting with the child who's done wrong, talking to them, trying to get them to understand you're in the wrong space right now. If anyone should be angry, it should be God, but he's not. Here he is caring. Here he is concerned. Here he is coming to his son, counseling him. In fact, Consider what God says next. It's likely the same thing parents end up saying. Notice verse number seven. If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. What's the implication? Listen, don't be angry. There's hope here. Because if you do well, the implication is you haven't done well. 
But if you do, you shouldn't be angry right now. You did the wrong. You shouldn't be angry right now. You disobeyed me. That's what parents end up saying. Why are you angry? No, you should be open to learning how to do well. And so you try to explain that's what God does. God says, will you not be accepted? What do the parents do? They lay out the road back. I want you back. I want you to do well. I want you to overcome this thing. We can get past it. This is not the end of the world. Pick your head up. This is not over. Stop being angry. You didn't do the right thing, but you can. And I'll accept you back. So don't be angry. Be sorrowful. Be penitent. That's what the scripture teaches. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. A repentance not to be regretted. You hear God's concern next. What happens in that same dynamic and arrangements when the parents can kind of see, this is not reaching him or her. I'm not quite getting through. Then you start giving warnings. Notice verse number seven. If thou doest well, thou shalt not be accepted. But if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee it shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. If you react in anger, if your countenance fall, if you don't repent and feel sorry for hurting me, then sin is like a lion sitting right outside your door. And if you don't master it, it is going to pounce on you and you're going to be its prey. But God encourages, but you have to subdue it. But you have to master it. You can overcome it. You're greater than this thing. You can beat it. How, son, put down your anger. Lift up your countenance. Know that I'm not angry and that I want you back. I want you to succeed. I want to help you succeed. You'll be accepted. Maybe Cain thought that God loved Abel more. I don't love your brother more. He just did the right thing, and you can too. There are many people in the exact same position today, living with anger at God. They should answer the question. Because if they could answer the question, maybe they could get to the reason why they're angry. Why are you angry? Much of the anger is aimed at God. It's really misplaced. Maybe they're angry at the world. Some people are. I don't like the world. Maybe they're angry at their childhood. Maybe they're angry at their siblings or their parents. You hear people say sometimes, I didn't ask to be born. I don't know who did. <laughs> I, don't know. <laughs> I didn't ask to be brought here. Maybe they're angry at their spouse. Some parents are angry at their children. Some children are angry at their parents. Maybe they're angry at their life. I don't get any breaks. I don't have any luck on my side. Maybe they're angry at their circumstances. Maybe you're angry at God being God. You know, the presentation of God in Scripture is that He is sovereign. He's the ruler. That angers some people because that means He's over them. He made you. He commands you. He has authority over you. He makes the rules. Maybe that's why Cain is angry. Who are you to tell me? If you don't obey him, he will reject you. And maybe Cain is dealing with that. Many people are upset at this arrangement. It's our heart that is the issue. 
And it is the launching pad of submission to God or rebellion against God. And it's where a lot of people live. And because of that, we're either going to go in the way of Cain or we're going to walk in the righteousness of Abel. These two represent humanity's interaction with God. Thomas Warren once said, the history of man is the history of those who submit to God and those who rebel against God. That's pretty much it. Some people will not submit to God being over them. They're angry that someone can tell them what to do. And so they opt for atheism, no God. Some opt for humanism, man is God. Others opt for pantheism, everything is God. Some opt for agnosticism. I don't believe there's enough evidence for me to know whether or not there's a God. And there are those who opt for polytheism. There are many gods. We have here God's revelation to man and God's explaining himself to man and God's interaction with man. And the Apostle Paul sums up man's disposition toward that in Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 18. Paul records, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold or suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But listen to what he says. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wives, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible men. Yeah, I know there's a God up there, but I don't want him over my life. Now, if you try to tell me that there's a God who makes commands of me and demands of me and I have to do a particular thing a certain way, well, I'll just be angry at that. There are others, however, and maybe there's a third option between those who submit and those who won't, those who try to somehow have a, uh, a relationship with God, but on their own terms. Now, these are religious people in general, and they wouldn't see themselves as rebelling against God. But what they fail to understand is that changing, modifying, adding to, or taking away from God's Word is rebellion. How do you mean? Let me ask you a question. Did Cain bring an offering? He did bring an offering. Did Nadab and Abihu bring fire? They did offer fire. Did Naaman offer to dip in rivers? He did. Just not the one God commanded, Abel. Just strange fire, Nadab and Abihu, and just Partha and Abana, just not Damascus, just not the Jordan. Yeah, there are people who don't understand that's rebellion. If you change what he says, it's no longer what he says. It's not what you want. Some are telling God, I'll worship you, yes, but on my terms. I'll be saved by you, but only if I can let you into my heart. I'll worship you, but I want to do the things that bring me joy. I give you glory. I'll live for you, 
But you need to accept that I'm going to do some things that I like and that I want, even if they are out of harmony with what you say. Then there are those who will believe that they can substitute worship for obedience. If you have your Bibles, look with me at 1 Samuel 15. The great thing about the Bible, one of the great things about the Bible, is these wonderful examples and illustrations that are in it so that we don't really have to wonder or guess. I mean, it's right there. Here is an example of an individual who says, I'll worship God, but I will use my worship as a substitute for obedience. And there are people who will try that today. Notice with me these first three verses. These are God's words to the king. Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you to be king over his people over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. What is the voice? What are the words of the Lord? Here they are. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did unto Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. See Exodus 17 for that. Now then, go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Spare them not, but slay both men and women, infant and suckling, oxen and sheep, camel and ass. There is God's words. In fact, I read it quickly. Go back and get the words, though. Notice, notice what God wants done. You can see it, first of all, in the word smite. That's a good King James word for kill. <laughs> Go smite Amalek, but keep going. If you weren't sure about smite, look at the next phrase, utterly destroy. Now, if you put smite and utterly destroy, I think you really got a package there of what's being involved. Yes, no, maybe so. You're going to smite them and you're going to utterly destroy. Not a lot left when you smite and utterly destroy, but keep going. All that they have and spare them not. Are you getting a picture here? If you smite and if you utterly destroy and you spare not, but then God says, spare them not, but slay. Well, now listen, I, I, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. I'll admit that. But I can follow smite and utterly destroy and slay and spare them not. And then God enumerates. Now, there's a couple of passages worth noting. We won't read this whole chapter, but slide down to verse 9. Verse number 9, the Bible says, but Saul. Typically, when you see the word but, that's a contrast. That's noteworthy. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, lambs, all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refused, that they destroyed. You start with God's words in verse numbers 1 to 3, and then you get to Saul's words in verse number 13. Here's what Saul says. And Samuel said to Saul, Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be the Lord, thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. That's Saul's words. Now, we read verse 9, and we read verses 1 through 3, and yet Saul says, I have obeyed. I have done what God has required. I, I performed the commandments of the Lord. What you have next in verse 14 are Samuel's words. If that's true, verse 14, Samuel said unto Saul, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? You know who delivered that message in one, two, three, to Saul, Samuel did that. So you know who heard 
the smite and the slay and the early. Samuel not only heard it, he said it. So his question to Saul is, well, if you've obeyed his voice, why do we have sheep? Why do we have oxen? Why do we have animals? Why are they here if you obey the voice of the Lord? Because the voice of the Lord was to utterly destroy everything. But Saul has a follow-up. Verse number 15. And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. I'm sorry, that's not what God said. And this is where a lot of people find themselves. I've done some things that God requires, but you don't actually believe he wants me to do everything he said in any particular way that he said it. You don't actually, are you one of those? Yes, he's one of those people. There are people who believe that, well, as long as you're worshiping, as long as you're sacrificing, slide down to verse 22 and hear what God says about it. Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Why is the Bible so great? We don't have to question it. We don't have to wonder. What does the Bible say? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. But God doesn't just say it's better. Notice what else he says. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected you from being king. God put these things in the Old Testament for us to learn them. He has not changed his disposition on these matters. When in doubt, do what God said. In our case, if you have doubt, do what Scripture says. Do what the Bible says. Do that. You can't go wrong doing that. But there are people who, like Cain, are angry. And God is asking you, what would you say? Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? Now, it could be the result of not knowing God. You know, some people don't know God's goodness. Some people have this idea about God that he is, he, he, he's very judgmental and harsh and can't wait for you to mess up, and he's just going to... Now, they didn't get that from Scripture, but that's what people believe, and so they're angry with God. They don't know his nature. They don't know his character. It could be the result of unfulfilled expectations of God. There are people who have desires for God to do things, and they're not being done. God is letting them down. And so, God's made promises in their mind. They have it so. He promised. Well, what did he promise? Friends, there's no passage in the Bible where God has promised his people won't get sick. There are people who get sick. And then as a result of that sickness, they believe God has let them down. After all, sometimes they say, I prayed and it didn't get answered. And so, must be something wrong with God. God never promised that his people wouldn't get sick. My, 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 and then you fill in the blank, passed away. My, fill in the blank, was lost. My, fill in the blank. And so, God never promised his people wouldn't die. God never promised that. In fact, the Bible seemingly goes out of, it way, out of its way to tell us the exact opposite. The first time Jesus talked to humanity, he said words to this effect. Blessed are you 
when men persecute you and say all manner of evil things against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so did they the prophets which were before you. You read Jesus saying, Peace I leave with you, my peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You hear Paul pinning, All that will live godly will suffer persecution. Or Peter, brethren, think it not strange, the fiery trial that is to come upon you. The Bible goes out of its way to tell us if you choose God, if you choose the light, if you choose holiness, you're going to suffer for that. And in addition to that, that the common lot of all men, there's no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. The common lot of all men will be yours as well. It could be the result of unfulfilled expectations from God. He made promises. He didn't keep. Chances are good. He didn't make the promises. He gave commands that are so grievous to bear. I can't bear them. And yet Jesus is saying, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And John is saying, his commandments are not grievous. It could be his creation. You know, God made the world and designed it to work a certain way, and it does. And it bothers people. Maybe they're angry about that. Why doesn't he do something? It could be the result of pain and suffering. There are reasons why it occurs. God never said it wouldn't. The very arrangement of the world makes it possible. There is, first of all, the freedom of choice. As a result of that freedom, we could, by our own personal choice, do things that harm ourselves. You can see that in Genesis 3. It was Eve who took of the tree. It was Eve who gave to her husband, and Adam ate with her, and they harmed themselves as a result of that choice. It could be the result of others. Why are we going to read in just a few more verses that Abel is dead? Why would we read that? Because his brother's works were evil. You see, Cain has freedom of choice too. God can't give you freedom of choice without giving it to every human being. And sometimes one human uses his freedom to hurt another human. Happens all the time. And then there's natural disasters. And then, as Solomon says, time and chance happens to us all. But these aren't reasons to be angry with God. God is the only constant good that there is. He's never done you wrong. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will always accept you if you will but repent. God came to us in the person of Jesus, and you know what he said? Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Anger is a heavy burden to carry, and God invites us to come to Jesus so that we can at last lay it down. If you're angry this morning, why? At God for some failure of his? I mentioned in the 8 o'clock hour this morning that sometimes people exercise their freedom of choice and then get angry with God over the results that they made. Husbands and wives get angry at God because their marriages fall on hard times. These are two individuals who found each other in a sea of humanity. And when they found each other, they were so happy they tell the world, I found her. I have found him. Who? The one. You know there's seven billion people. No. No. The one. <laughs> the one. And they said, yes, great. 
Send out invitations. We're all coming. We're going to invite God and we're going to celebrate. Great. What happened after 8, 10, 12 years? How are y'all angry at each other and fighting all the time? And what is it that's making this marriage come to an end? I can assure you this. It's not God. Parents have children and they rejoice at the birth of the child. We're pregnant. Fantastic. Wonderful news. Everybody's happy. Can't wait till the baby to be born. We're all excited about that. You got a name picked out? Yes. Room? Yes. Clothes? Yes. Colors? Yes. We're in. We are all things baby. Fantastic. Babies grow up to be teenagers. <laughs> have you heard parents talk about teenagers? It's not pretty. It's not pretty. What happened to the young person? Well, they've been in your hands. They've been in your house. They've been under your tutelage. You're their primary teacher. If something's wrong with them, God sure messed up on this child, didn't he? <laughs> no. no, God is the only constant permanent good. And there's truly no reason to be angry with him. You know, this morning, if you haven't obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's God. He's not angry with you. He is hoping that you will come to him and put down your anger and at last be saved. God sent Jesus. And if you have sin in your life, don't be angry and don't be sad. Be hopeful. Because God will have you back. Instead of anger, be penitent. Instead of sadness, use that sorrow and allow it to lead you to God's goodness. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, John 8, 24, he is. Allow that to change your heart and change your mind. Cain's response is wrong. You have no reason to be angry if you did wrong and was corrected. Be hopeful and change your heart and change your mind and oh. God would have loved for that to have happened. Repent and change your heart. Confess the name of Jesus and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins and let God save you this morning. If you are his child, every parent who has gone through this looks and listens to their child's response very intently. The child who does wrong and the parent shows up the parent punishes and the child gets angry and the parent comes back and says, now wait a minute. What's the parent concerned with? The wrong? Well, yes and no. Because the anger is now making the parent think about something else. If every time you do wrong and you're corrected and you get angry, and if we can't get you to see that's the wrong response, if we can't get you to see that now we're concerned that's only going to get worse. And you're only going to do more harm to yourself and to others. And so there are parents who've been done wrong, finding themselves at the child's door, sitting on the bed, talking to the child, saying, hey, honey, no, don't be angry. Come on now. You see this, don't you? Why? You know, that's kind of exactly where we leave this chapter. We have God talking to his son, his son angry at his father. And his father telling him, if you don't fix this, 
sins just outside the door. Lord's will, when we come back next Sunday, we'll see just what happened if this is not fixed. Young people, I tell you, there is nobody on this planet who loves you more than your parents. There are no people who want your best more than your parents. Their correction and instruction is intended for your good. And their love is motivating them to try to help you now and try to help you down the road. And if you listen to them, don't be angry, but be penitent. It will help you in the immediate and it will save your soul in the future. You're not a child of God. Become one this morning. If you are a child, come home to your father. If we can help you in any way, don't be angry. Come home to God and let him save you today while we stand and while we sing.